Turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Scripture reading this morning is going to be Romans chapter 1, verse 1. If you're using uh, one of the Blue Pew Bibles, uh, you will find Romans 1 on page 939. As you can tell, we're not in the Gospel of Luke this morning. And beginning this morning and going for the next five weeks, we are actually going to take a break from our study in Luke's Gospel to, to devote our attention to five pillars of the Reformation, what are sometimes known as the five solas of Reformation theology. Sola Scriptura, Sola Gratia, Sola Fide, Solus Christus, and Soli Deo Gloria. Scripture alone. Grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, and the glory of God alone. You'll see an insert in your bulletin this morning which highlights each of these five pillars of Reformation theology. And we will be spending the next five Sundays unpacking them one by one. Matthew Barrett, a theology professor in London, says, In my experience, many evangelical churches today have never heard of the five solas. He then adds, it could be that they have never heard the labels but would recognize the doctrines once told what each sola means. But my suspicion is that for many churchgoers, even the content of the five solas is foreign or worse, offensive. And I believe this is true. Many people not only do not know what these terms mean, but they, they are not familiar with the doctrines and maybe even find the doctrines offensive. I thank God that for many in this congregation that is not true. I know that, that many of you already know and love these foundational doctrines. However, I also know that there are some, some here this morning, but even many more in our community who do not know what it means to be reformed, and even are suspicious of the title. They're they're suspicious of of reformed doctrine. And so over the course of the next five Sundays, I hope to show the glorious beauty of reformed doctrine. I hope to show you that, that reformed doctrine is beautiful because it is simply the biblical gospel. It is the gospel of God concerning His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And I hope to show you this by, by showing you each of these doctrines in the, uh, of le- uh, the words of, of Paul's great letter to the Romans. This is, this is Paul's magnum opus. This is Paul's declaration of the gospel for all to hear. And in the pages of this letter, we will see each of these pillars expounded. And we will begin this morning with the very first, Sola Scriptura. So read with me Romans chapter 1, verse 1. This is the very Word of God. Paul, an apostle, or I'm sorry, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Let us pray. Father God, this is your Word It is by this word, by this imperishable seed, that we have been born again. And it is by the pure milk of this word that we will now grow up in our salvation. Father, according to your great mercy, we ask that you would fill the preaching of your word this morning with power. 
Do not allow it to return void, but but cause it to bring forth in abundance the fruits of righteousness, which bring praise and glory to your name. May those who are blind be made to see. May those who are downcast be lifted up. May those who are anxious find peace. May those who are bewildered find wisdom. May those who are weak find strength. May those who are hurting find comfort. All in the good news of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. It is in His name and for His name's sake that we pray. Amen. As I said, our our topic this morning is the first pillar of the Reformation. Sola Scriptura. It means simply, Scripture alone. It is a shorthand way of saying that Scripture alone is our highest and final authority for all questions of faith and practice. That is, it is is Scripture which which tells us what we must believe. It It is Scripture that defines our faith. Nothing besides Scripture has the authority to to tell us what we must believe. It is Scripture that reveals to us the Gospel of God. And it is Scripture which, which tells us how we must respond. Scripture not only controls our faith, it also rules our practice. It rules what we do. It rules how we live. We are called upon to live lives worthy of the Gospel, lives that adorn the Gospel. We are called upon to walk in the way of righteousness, the way revealed in God's Word. It is Scripture that that commands how we must live. No pastor, no theologian, no congregation, no presbytery, no council, no pope speaks to us with the very authority of God. They are ministers of the Word. They, they teach the Word. They expound the Word. They explain the Word. They apply the Word. But they do not speak with the authority of the Word. They do not speak with the same authority of God. It is Scripture alone that is able to bind our conscience. It is, it is Scripture alone that, that, that rules what we are to believe and what we are to do. This is what it means to speak of sola scriptura. And it is this doctrine which gave Luther the courage to stand against the Pope and against the church in his day. Luther knew from his study of the Scriptures that the teaching and the practice of the church, the the church as it was ruled by the Pope in his day, he knew that their teaching and their practice were out of accord with the Scriptures. What they taught as true was simply not in accord with what what the Scriptures taught. What they called upon Christians to do was not the life of Christ set forth in the Scriptures. And therefore, he, as as a single monk, was willing to stand against the Pope and against the whole church, not because he had such confidence in himself, but because he stood upon the authority of God's Word. You may remember Luther's reply to the council when he was commanded to recount his teaching. He said, Unless I am convinced by the testimony of Scriptures reasonably explained, my conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot retract anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. May God 
Here I stand. Here I stand upon the authority of God's Word. Luther would go on to say that a, that a boy at the plow with the Scripture in his mouth has more authority than the Pope without it. For it is not the Pope that has authority. It is not the church that has authority. But rather, it is the very Word of God delivered to the saints once and for all by the apostles. This is the rock. This is the solid ground upon which we stand. This is what we mean when we say Scripture alone. And this high view of Scripture is exactly what Paul has in mind as he begins his letter to the Romans. Look again at this opening verse. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. We know from the rest of the letter that Paul did not plant the church in Rome. In fact, Paul had never even visited the church in Rome And therefore, as he begins his letter, he he recognizes that these people do not know him. They do not know who he is. They do not know him personally. And therefore, it is not enough for him simply to introduce himself, to to simply identify himself as the author of the letters. He must, in some sense, present, present his credentials. He needs to show this church why he has the authority to to write to them such a letter, such an authoritative document. And he does so with these words. He he does so by introducing himself as a servant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle. Paul is first a a servant of Christ Jesus. You've probably heard before that 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 word could actually be translated as a bond slave. He is a slave. He is a, a servant. He is one with a master. He is one under authority. Think about a servant. A servant is one who does the will of another. A servant does not serve his own interest. A servant does not pursue his own agenda. A servant does what he is given to do. And this is exactly what Paul is saying about himself. He is a servant. He is one who serves another. He he does not pursue his, his own interest. He does not pursue his own agenda. He does not set his own direction. He serves at the will of another. He is a servant. And in this, Paul is not unique. Paul is a servant as all Christians are servant. If you are a Christian, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you have bowed to Him as Lord, you are by definition a servant. You are a slave. You have denied yourself. You have given up your right to do your own thing. You have given up the right to go your own way. You have given up the right to set the agenda of your life and to pursue your own interest. You are a servant. You, you serve the interests of another. You do the will of your master. This is true of all Christians. But not all servants are called to the same Work. We, we recognize this. Even human servants have different jobs. Some serve in the house. Others serve in the, the field. Some serve in the mill. Others serve uh, in, in the kitchen. We, we serve in different jobs. We're given different responsibilities. We, we do different things. And so this brings us to Paul's second phrase, because in this second phrase, Paul tells us the job that he's been given to do as a servant of Christ Jesus. And what does he say? He tells us that as a servant, he has been called to be an apostle. This is really the key term for us this morning as we we think about this doctrine of, of sola scriptura. Paul is an apostle. 
It was Jesus who first designated some of his disciples to be apostles. And it's one of those events, one of the few events that's actually recorded in all of the synoptic gospels. And in Matthew 10, and Mark 3, and Luke 6, we, we read the account that Jesus, after spending the night in prayer, took from all of his disciples 12. And those 12 he designated to be his apostles. So what is an apostle? What is this designation that that Jesus has has given to the twelve? Well, an apostle simply is one who is sent. It's it's one who is sent to speak for another. Paul tells us here what his message is. He is one who is sent to speak the gospel. That's what an apostle is. An apostle is one who is sent to speak for another and to speak with the authority of the other. So they speak a message from their master with the authority of their master. Have you ever sent one of your kids to get your other kids and said, hey, tell them that dad said so? You know, if, if, if my youngest daughter goes to my oldest son and says, hey, it's, it's time to come upstairs, he's probably not going to listen. But if she goes and she, she says, daddy said, it's time to come. She's now an apostle. <laughs> She she, she now speaks with authority. She she goes to speak my message, and it's not her calling, it's me calling. That's what an apostle is. An, An apostle speaks with the authority of another. And it was Jesus who designated 12 of his apostles, or 12 of his disciples, to be apostles. But of course, Paul wasn't one of those 12. He wasn't one of the original twelve, and so how did he become an apostle? Well, Paul refers to himself as one untimely born. He becomes an apostle later. We actually read about his conversion on the road to Acts 9, and we refer to this as Paul's conversion, but it is actually Paul's calling. Yes, he is converted, but in the moment of his conversion, he is also called. He is called to be An apostle, Jesus Christ himself, the resurrected Lord, appears to Paul on the road to Damascus and says, you are going to be my mouthpiece. I am sending you to the Gentiles to proclaim the gospel, the good news of who I am and what I have accomplished through my death and resurrection. And in that moment, Paul becomes an apostle untimely born. Becomes one sent by Jesus Christ himself to speak the message of Jesus Christ with the authority of Jesus Christ. This is who Paul is claiming to be. Paul claims to be one, designated by Christ himself to speak with Christ's authority. And he understands this. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. I want you to see how Paul himself thinks about his own words, thinks about the words that he speaks to the churches and, and writes to the churches. Notice what he says in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. He says, And we also thank God constantly for this. And so we see Paul doing this in his letters all the time. He's, he's thanking God for the faith of those to whom he's right, the, thanking God for the way that they have responded to the gospel. And what in particular does he thank God for this time? He says, we thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. 
hear what Paul's saying. He says, we thank God that when we preach to you, you received our words not as the mere words of men, not as the, the, the opinion of a, of a human being, but rather you received our words as they really are. You received our words as the very words of God. You'll sometimes hear it said that the church sometime in the 4th century got together and decided that that these certain books would be called the Word of God, that they would have authority in uh, the church for these questions of faith and practice. But that is simply not true. Here we see it. Paul already understood at the moment that he was speaking, at the moment that he was writing, he already understood, and those to whom he was writing already understood, that his words were the very words of God. This is God speaking. This comes to us with the authority of God through the mouths of his specially chosen apostles. To ignore the word is to ignore God. To disbelieve the Word is to disbelieve God. To disobey the Word is to disobey God. This is the very Word of God. And it's not just Paul who viewed his words this way. It's not just the Thessalonians who viewed his word this way. We know from 2 Peter chapter 3 that Peter himself understood the same thing to be true, not only about his own words, but about the words of Paul. Remember what what Peter says at the end of his second letter? He says, there are some things in Paul's letters that are hard to understand. And aren't we thankful that he said that? There are things in his letters that are hard to understand. There are things that that we wrestle with. There are things that don't immediately make sense to us. There are things in his letters that are hard to understand. But then Peter adds this. He says, and the unstable twist those difficult sayings to their own destruction in the same way that they twist and distort the other scriptures. Did you hear it? They twist and distort those sayings, the the hard sayings in Paul, the same way that they twist and distort the other scriptures. So the scriptures of, of Paul's letters are distorted and the other scriptures are distorted. And that is significant. Because remember what Paul himself said about the Scriptures, referring primarily to the Scriptures of the Old Testament. He said the Scriptures are God-breathed. They are the very words of God spoken by the prophets, written by the prophets. And Peter agreed. Peter said that the words of the the prophets were the very words of God, that the the prophets spoke under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. They, They wrote as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so Paul and Peter, they understand that their words as apostles, that their words are Scripture, that their words are the very Word of God, that their words are are the same as the, the words of the Old Testament, now recorded in the New Testament. This is what Paul understood about his his words. He understood that his words are Scripture. And this is why he could say that the New Testament church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. You see, the, the church doesn't give authority to the Word. The Word is the foundation upon which the church is built. The church didn't decide which books would be authoritative. The the church derives its ministerial authority from the Word. 
That word once for all delivered to the saints, that word that we are called upon to contend for, that, that word that we are hold, to, hold fast to, that word that we are not to add to or, or subtract from. The word is our authority because the word is the very word of God. It is here that God speaks. It is here that God rules His people. And Paul tells us in his letter to the Galatians that if you add to this word, or if you subtract to this word, if you preach something other than this word, then you are under the judgment of God. This word is the word. And even if an angel from heaven should preach another word, they are anathema. They are under God's judgment. That is what it means to speak of sola scriptura. This word and this word alone comes to us with the authority of God and all the pronouncements of men, whether they be popes, whether they be councils, whether they be presbyteries, whether they be congregations, whether they be pastors, all the words of men are to be judged by this word and by this word alone. That's what it means to speak of Scripture alone. That's what it means to speak of sola scriptura. And it is that realization that set off the Reformation. Because it was as Luther and and others studied the Scriptures and began to see that what the church taught was not what the Scriptures taught, that the two did not align, that they had the courage to challenge the church. The church, which was assumed to have all authority, Luther was able to say, listen, Your authority is is from the Word. And if you're not in accord with the Word, then you have no authority. A, A boy at the plow with the Word of God has more authority than the Pope without it. And that is the the flame that lit the fuse of the Reformation. Because it was from there that the Gospel began to be rediscovered in the pages of Scripture. So let's think about that for just a moment. What are are the implications of of making such a claim? What are the implications of saying that we stand upon Scripture alone? The first obvious implication is that this is the very Word of God. And if it's here that we have God's authority, if it's here that we hear God's voice, then the first implication is obvious. We must devote ourselves to knowing the Scriptures. With Paul, we must pray that we will be filled with the knowledge of God's will. We must pray that we would know the Scriptures. And that means that we must read it and we must study it on our own. But it means especially that we must sit under the Word preached. You see, God gave to His church pastors and and, and evangelists and, and teachers Men called to to teach and to preach this Word. Men called to to devote their lives to the expounding of Scripture. And so, yes, it is is a blessing of the Reformation that we all have our own Bibles uh, this morning, that we can all read it for ourselves, but we must read it together as a community, and we must read it under the authority of those called by the church to preach it. That sounds very self-serving, I know, but it is the truth. We read the Bible not on our own, in our own private ways, but we read the Bible together as the church, seeking to understand it, seeking to apply it under the direction and and oversight of of the teachers that God has given to His church. Of course, no teacher has authority apart from the Word. So if he, if he leaves the Word, if he, if he deviates from the Word, then, then he has no authority. That's why we don't follow one teacher, but rather why we listen to the church and to the voice of the church as 
a whole. So the first thing that we, we see is that we must, we must devote ourselves to knowing this word. So I challenge you this, this morning to, to simply ask yourself, where does that priority rank in your life? How much time do you give to knowing the word? How much energy do you devote to knowing the word? How urgent is it to you to sit under the word preached? How urgent is it to you to, to hear the word sung? How, how eager are you to speak this word with one another, to, to speak it into one another's lives, to wrestle with it, to understand it? We must seek to know the word. It is our final authority in all questions of faith and practice. But of course, it's not enough simply to know the word. It's not enough simply to know the scriptures. We must also believe the scriptures. We must believe what we read. We must believe what we study. And this, this goes two ways. We, we must believe what the Word says without addition or subtraction. We must believe what the Word says and what the Word alone says. In Paul's day, the far greater danger was the, the danger of addition. People adding to the Word. Teachers adding to what God has said. Adding to the Gospel that Paul preached. In Paul's day, they were known as, as Judaizers. And they agreed, yes, Jesus is the Messiah. Yes, salvation is, is through Him. But His salvation, they would say, is for those who keep the Mosaic Law. His salvation is for the good Jews. And so if you want to be saved, if, if you want to participate in this great thing that, that God is doing through Jesus Christ, then you have to keep the law. You have to be circumcised. You have to observe the days. You have to keep the, the Sabbath. You have to follow the, the food laws. You have to do all these things to participate in this salvation purchased by Christ. And they were adding to the gospel. And Paul rebuked them. Of course, in Luther's day, it was still going on. I've already mentioned the, the doctrines of indulgences and the doctrines of, of purgatory and these, these, these false teachings that were being added to the gospel. The Roman Catholic Church taught that you were saved by grace and that you were saved by Jesus Christ, just not Christ alone and just not grace alone and just not faith alone. They, they added. It was not Scripture alone, but it was Scripture plus the traditions and the teachings of the church. And Luther stood against such things. And of course, we still have a problem with this today. Adding our own variations to the Scriptures, our own beliefs about what it means to be a Christian. Can you imagine a Christian belonging to the other political party? Can you imagine a Christian not even being uh, uh, in a democracy? Can you imagine them not being a capitalist? We, we struggle with these things. We have begun to, to tie these things to the Gospels if this is what it means to be a Christian. And it does not. We believe Scripture alone is our final authority. We must not add to it, but of course we also must not subtract from it. We must believe all that the Scriptures say. We must not set aside those parts that we would rather not talk about. In our day, it is often the, the ethical components of, of, of God's call in our lives that we want to, to set aside. We, we don't particularly like his, his sexual ethic, or we don't particularly like what he has to say about material possessions, or, or we don't particularly like what he has to say about anxiety, or, or we, we, we choose those parts that we want to set aside. We, we, we choose those parts that we don't want to believe. 
But it's not only the ethical components, it is also the, the fundamental doctrines of our faith that we struggle with. We, we struggle to believe in a God of wrath. We, we struggle to believe in a God who would judge sinners. We struggle to believe in a, a God who is sovereign over all of creation. We struggle with these, these doctrines and we're, and we're tempted to set them aside because they do not fit with our own understanding of, of what a God should look like or what a good God should do. And we must submit to the Word. We must recognize that the Word alone is our authority. It is on the Word alone that we stand. And we must believe all that it says without addition or subtraction. And of course, believing the Word means obeying the Word. We must not only know it, we must not only believe it, but we must obey the Scriptures. We must allow it to shape our lives. We must allow it to to dictate what we believe and and what we do. We see it even in the first verses of of Romans chapter 1. Paul speaks of the obedience of faith, and and we, we Debate with one another what that means. What is Paul talking about when he he speaks about the obedience of faith? It can be understood two ways. It might mean the obedience that is faith. that, That the obedience that the gospel requires for is faith. And Jesus himself said as much. He said, the good works that I require of you is that you believe in me. Obedience to the gospel means believing the gospel. And we must believe the gospel. We must believe what it says about us. That we are sinners justly condemned. And we must believe what it says about Jesus Christ, that He is the eternal Son of God, come in the flesh, not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as the ransom for many, that those who believe in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. This is what the Gospel teaches. And when we believe this Gospel, we submit to the Gospel. We obey the Gospel. But of course, such faith leads to obedience. There is an obedience that flows out of faith. There is a a life lived in accord with the the truth of who God is. Francis Schaeffer used to say that the Christian life form is not that hard to figure out. Just live like you believe what you say you believe. Live like what you profess to be true is actually true. Live it out in the details of your lives. You you claim that Jesus is Lord, live like it. You you claim that that God is is good, that He is sweeter than honey, that that He brings joy to His people. Live as if that were true. Live like you believe what you claim to believe. Let Scripture rule your life. Let Let it dictate your path. Let it show you the way that you ought to go. Because this is what it means to claim Scripture alone. To say that Scripture alone is our authorities. To say that Scripture alone comes to us with the very authority of God. That Scripture alone is the Word of God written. And therefore we must know it. We must believe it. And we must obey it. And of course there are many today who struggle to hear this as good news. There are many today who who struggle to hear any proclamation of an authority so great, an authority that rules every facet of your life, an authority that rules every square inch of the universe. How can such a proclamation be good? Because in our experience, power corrupts. And absolute power corrupts 
Absolutely. How can it possibly be good that there is such an authority that rules over our lives, an authority to which we must absolutely submit? I suggest to you that we find our answer to that question in the cross of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Because there we see that God is not a man. That God is not corrupted by His authority. But that God uses His authority for good. That He is a benevolent King. That He is a gracious Master. And that His calling is a thing of beauty beyond comprehension. For in Jesus Christ, the Word became flesh. Not to subjugate a people, but to redeem them. To subdue them for Himself that they might be truly free to live. This is who Jesus Christ is. This is what the Gospel is all about. His Word is not a burden that crushes, but it is the foundation upon which we stand. All other ground is sinking sand, but we stand upon the rock of God's faithful promise. A promise that will by no means return void. And Jesus said, if you will build your house upon this rock, if you will live standing upon this sure foundation, then your house will never fall, but it will stand for all eternity. Because God in His grace has given us such a sure foundation. That is why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Believe it with me. Father God, we do thank You for Your Word. We, we acknowledge that in our sinfulness we resist authority. In our, in our sinfulness we, we do not want to submit to, to anyone or to anything. But Father God, we pray that You would rescue us from such foolishness. That You would humble us. That You would subdue us for Yourself. That we might be truly set free. Father, teach us to taste and to see Your goodness in the Gospel of Your Son. And teach us to stand upon it as our sure and certain foundation that we might live lives to the praise of Your glory and might enjoy life with You for all eternity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.